Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We discuss F1's newest winner, Valtteri Bottas, and ask if Sauber's Honda engine deal really is such a good idea. So, Valtteri Bottas is a Grand Prix winner at the 81st attempt, winning in Russia. Not a dramatic race necessarily, but a really tense and interesting one. Plenty for us to talk about. For stat fans, he's the 107th driver to win a World Championship race. My name is Ed Straw, the Editor-in-Chief of Autosport, and joining me first to dissect the Russian Grand Prix is Lawrence Barreto. Now, Lawrence, I was trying to find some inspiration for how to introduce you to our listeners. So, I had a look at your Twitter profile, and I saw you refer to yourself as a burger connoisseur. Now, I have some experience of your burger proclivities. Perhaps you could explain to the listening world exactly how far you go in your pursuit of a burger. Um, well, like anyone, I like a good burger, but I'm slightly different in that I record every burger that I ever eat. Since the beginning of time? I would say for about five years or so now. So I, I might well have had more than 83 different burgers, but since I started recording them anyway. So this is like Premier League records, isn't it? That's when time began. <laughs> yeah, essentially. <laughs> the important records, basically. I'm aiming to get to 100. I've had good burgers. I've had bad burgers, as you well know. I think you've, you've been present for a few bad burgers around the world. Are you saying I'm some kind of burger Jonah? Well, I didn't want to say that. 
you said that. Uh, so one day I'd like to write a book, um, my top 100 burgers. Um, and yeah, that's that's the target. So that's why I call myself a burger connoisseur. So this is going to be award-winning book, television series, Oscar-winning screenplay, great film. This could be a massive deal. Well, I think it's probably just going to be a book. I like, going to hope that some people buy it. Well, there we go. That's what all writers hope, that somebody buys their stuff. I'm not going to give away what your number one burger is. You'll have to find that out, presumably, on the last page of the forthcoming as yet untitled book. Now also joining me, who has been very much enjoying this tale of Barreto's burger exploits, is Stuart Codling of F1 Racing. I didn't bother to prepare for your introduction because you're always up to some ridiculous antics or something over the weekend. So what have you been up to? Apart from sitting here giggling and just just putating what the title of Florence's book might be. What ideas have you got? Well, I don't know, you know, yes, we have no tomatoes, because as everyone knows, tomatoes should not be present in a burger. They just add a wet, sloppy kiss to the patty and spoil it. Tomato and bread should never meet. I like tomatoes, but not in bread. It's no, wrong. Sure, they, they just make it wet. It's not nice. But yeah, as you can see from my regalia today, which doesn't, of course, translate into the listening format of a podcast, I'm in my London Irish regalia, having watched them win 35-3 in Doncaster yesterday, uh, uh, great sporting occasion slight downside of course being that it happened in Doncaster so uh, it meant I didn't watch the Grand Prix until about uh, 11 o'clock last night it's always frustrating because you can't follow the live timing if you're doing that I tried to follow the live timing from my grandstand seat before kickoff but my work's iPhone uh, battery lasts about 15 minutes from full to empty if I try and use any apps so I got about uh, 20 laps into the race and then it went obviously it's all about Valtteri Bottas it's his first win, his fourth Mercedes start. It's been a bit of an up and down start to the season. I had very high expectations for Bottas. I rate him highly. I've been a little bit disappointed. He hasn't been bad this year, but I, I expected a little bit more from him. But Russia was what I wanted to see from him. He probably should have been on pole, really. But a well-executed race win under pressure, which I think was great to see that he could show how good he is. Yeah, I think so. How 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 do you regard the qualifying, Ed? Because I kind of thought, were, were Ferrari 1-2 on, on merit, or was there a slight fail on Mercedes' part there? Certainly in the case of Bottas, he could well have been on pole. If you add his best sectors together, I think he was just over a tenth faster, so theoretically the pace was in there if he strung together the optimum lap. Certainly Ferrari was, was strong, so it was a close battle. The top three were covered by a tenth of a second, which reflects that. But yeah, probably they will have been a little bit disappointed not to have not to have had at least one car on the front row, obviously, with Lewis Hamilton struggling. But, of course, that all changed at the start with Bottas hooking up the start and breezing past both Ferraris pretty much before the before the first corner. That was really interesting, that start, actually, because when, when you kind of watched it very closely again from the various angles on replay, basically the two Mercedes took a very similar line of attack through the first gentle curve before the actual first corner. Bottas made that stick and Lewis couldn't quite, partly I think because obviously there was another Ferrari in the way and then Raikkonen got pretty racy and uh, Lewis <laughs> thought the better of it and, and avoided the shunt that uh, then happened a few cars further back. Yeah, Hamilton couldn't quite get into such an advanced position around Raikkonen, so going around the outside in that corner wasn't really going to be on unless you were ahead properly going in. So that kind of set the the stage for the race and then Bottas just took off perhaps isn't the word but he consistently eked out an advantage in that first stint Sebastian Vettel said it was the first stint that won Bottas the race were you impressed with that performance it always looks easy from the outside driving around at the front of the pack but guy who hasn't won a Grand Prix maybe under a little bit of pressure showing that he can really do it we touched on it a little bit earlier but I think Bottas probably felt that he had a 
point to prove. I know that he had a, a technical problem when he was leading the race last time uh, in Bahrain. But this time around, um, I think he just wanted to probably prove to himself that he could do it. And he went about it in a very systematic way, didn't he? He kind of didn't push it too hard in that early stint, gradually built up a gap. So yeah, I was, I was massively impressed with um, what he'd done. It. But we've got to remember that in his past uh, experience of Russia, he's always been quite good. So Russia's, you know, Russia's always been a, a strong track for him. So it's good that he managed to put it all together on a weekend when Lewis just wasn't there. It feels quite important to me that in the first four races, he's ticked kind of everything off the list. He's got a pole, he's got a win. He's had a weekend where he's been Mercedes lead driver. And you can say all you want about it being a long season, etc. But the die is very often cast early on. I think the thing with, because he's Finnish and he's, he is quite Finnish and a bit undemonstrative, it's very easy to imagine if you don't know him or are just a casual observer that all of this sort of talk of pressure and that sort of thing is, is nonsense but I'm sure he was feeling it just as much as anyone else in his position would that there were questions beginning to be asked. Well he certainly wasn't giving himself an easy ride. Elite sports people have to push themselves to the limits they want to be the best so looking at his season slightly disappointing qualifying in Australia decent race performance China obviously had the spin under the safety car which ultimately is a stupid mistake he said that himself and that compromised his race Bahrain okay did well in qualifying getting the pole led the race but that race kind of got away from him and Hamilton was comfortably quicker than him but then Russia is the time when you can look at it and say yeah that's a good weekend he's he's strung it together so that that will make a difference and it'll just stop him from trying too hard if you like it's the great paradox isn't it the less hard you try at that level the better you become but the more you need to try because of the pressure, the harder it is just to let it come naturally to you. So that that's probably what Bottas has bought himself, the ability just to keep doing his thing without thinking, oh God, I've got to, I've got to get this result, I've got to do this, that, the other. And as Nicky Lauda said after the race, once you've won your first race, it kind of just takes the pressure off from the next one. The next one's just going to be easier to win, isn't it? But I think the other thing I wanted to mention was that in the first three races, you pointed out those things where Bottas was maybe struggling a little bit, but each time he's bounced back, he hasn't really let it affect him. Um, and so I think when the chance came in Russia and Lewis doesn't have off days all that often or off weekends rather um, Bottas took his opportunity didn't he? Yeah. It's very easy to come into a position like that and be underwhelming Aiki Kovalainen is, is, is one such who in the final analysis was a little bit underwhelming and then there are other drivers throughout history as well who've got in a winning car and just been outshone by the other driver The bottom line is that all the drivers out there are very quick racing drivers they're seriously good the difference is very often are mental so there is a unique pressure to being right at the front because you know every second really counts you know if you're in a Williams and battling for six or seventh okay if you do a job that's not quite right you might be seventh rather than six it'll be noticed within the team in the analysis etc but it's not quite the same thing at stake because when push comes to shove it's the difference between sixth and seventh but for Bottas this is the chance to become a Grand Prix winner, which is a huge deal. He's only the 107th driver to win a world championship race. Terminology I use because that includes the anomalous Indy 500s of 1950 to 1960, which is one of my favourite phrases to write in columns when <laughs> the analysing statistics. Yeah. It lets you mention Troy Rutman as well, who is otherwise not really figure in uh, F1 history. Exactly, yes. Uh, likewise, Bill Vukovic doesn't loom large in, uh, in F1 history, even though the record books would suggest he, he would. But that's really important for Bottas, I think, just to say, yeah, I can do it. I've won a race. A lot of people questioned the decision to bring him in alongside Hamilton over the winter. I think they were wrong. We were always quite pro Bottas because we know how good he can be, both in his Formula One career and in his junior career before that. 
So I think it was entirely justified, but it's good for him to show to the world what he can do. It's worth mentioning again in passing here what a good grid we've got this year. There's no glaring weak links of Tarso Marquez type drivers or Ricardo Rossitz. By and large, there's, there's no really, really weak links this season. So it is really competitive. Yeah, which is what you want to see. And it's good when you've got two strong cars up at the front with four competitive drivers. Obviously, Raikkonen had his strongest showing of the season in Russia as well. So we've seen all four of those drivers have decent weekends, which is which is encouraging. But Bottas-wise, Lawrence, what do you think? How good is he? Obviously, Hamilton had an off weekend. This wasn't Lewis Hamilton at his best being beaten by Valtteri Bottas. This was Lewis Hamilton having one of his weakest weekends in a while. And we know how difficult it's going to be for him to continue to to beat Hamilton even on an occasional basis because Hamilton is one of the all-time greats. I think we can say that now. I think anyone who suggests he isn't is just doing that thing that we don't appreciate those that we've got now. We've got to wait 20 years to actually look back and say, actually, they were pretty good. Lewis Hamilton's a brilliant Grand Prix driver. But for Bottas, does this change the season for him, do you think? Not yet. I think it's still only one one race where he's got the, everything together on a weekend. He's got to do that on a consistent basis. As you mentioned, Lewis had an off weekend and he doesn't have many of those throughout the year and the chances are he might only have one, two or two more, you know, throughout the year and um, Bottas is going to find it consistently difficult to to challenge him. That said, the way that he coped with the pressure from Sebastian uh, Vettel in the final stages of the race uh, was impressive. I know he had that lock-up but apart from that he, he absorbed that pressure and the way that he he kind of dominated or he crushed Lewis across the weekend, across all the sessions and he never let Lewis back in. And I think that's just quite an important signal to send out to Lewis if he is going to have any sort of challenge throughout the rest of the year. And it's really important for the Mercedes team as well. I wrote a column on autosport.com and Autosport Plus uh, last week talking about how important Bottas and Raikkonen can be in terms of winning the championships for their teammate. Assuming we continue to have the pattern of Vettel and Hamilton being the title contenders. And it should be noted, Bottas is only 10 points behind Hamilton, so he's not exactly out of it. Raikkonen on 49 points to Vettel's 86 so I get the feeling his role is reasonably well set but what we saw there was Bottas beating Vettel so Hamilton had a dreadful weekend finished fourth but because Bottas was able to beat Vettel that massively mitigated the damage you know imagine if he'd been fourth or even third if Bottas had been behind him and Vettel had won that would have been a 10 point swing and likewise we saw Raikkonen helping out Vettel as well by beating Hamilton which we haven't seen. Neither of those two number two drivers, as we're calling them, more just as a convenient grouping rather than a, an official status. But neither Raikkonen nor Bottas had taken points off the team leaders of their opposition so far this season. So that's really important. And that's going to create an interesting dynamic, I think, for the rest of the rest of the season. You can't rule out Bottas becoming a title contender. Chances are it's going to be Hamilton because he's got he's got the experience. He's a multiple champion. He's been with the team for a long time. But if I was Hamilton, rather than doing that thing of being worried that there's a driver to take points off me, I'd be thinking, brilliant, I've got I've got a wingman here who can convert a, a seven-point swing into a ten-point swing by finishing second to me in some races. He'll win some. But it's a, it's a strong lineup, and that's exactly what Mercedes needs. As Lawrence said, it is just one race, so we can't draw too many predictions from it. But to my mind, it nudged the seasonal narrative along quite nicely, um, Bottas winning, because... If he were to win more races and Ferrari continue their pattern of Vettel being the main scorer, it could just create a scenario where Mercedes have to start choosing between their drivers in a way that Ferrari won't have to because Vettel will be very much the top dog in Ferrari. And if 
if this sort of general parity prevails between Hamilton and Bottas, Mercedes might have to make some difficult choices. See, I'd much rather be in that position than have a number two who's driving around as a number two and a half or a number three. Yes, there have been occasions in the past where drivers have taken points off each other. 86 with Williams and PK and Mansell. 2007 at McLaren with Alonso and Hamilton. Rosberg and Hamilton, when they were battling, had there been another team involved in that title fight, that could have been quite interesting. But I'd much rather have drivers in the car capable of getting the results because I think that gives you the possibilities and the options. You have to manage it. I think the important thing is that you've got to make sure whichever driver is stronger that weekend is not impeded by the other, if you like. And we've seen that in a few previous races a slower teammate holding the other one up. And it doesn't necessarily matter who it is. I would argue that even if Hamilton's going for the championship, if Bottas is quicker than him and behind, you should let him go because you want that car in play as far as possible. Raikkonen didn't have that bad a weekend, I thought. you know, he, Like I said earlier, he was racy into that first corner. He was then kind of obviously a little bit less whelming than Vettel. Had his little senior moment where he didn't realise which Mercedes was in front of him and had been for for the entire race. But um he he was kind of he he was blowing a bit warmer having having blown cold. He was I wouldn't describe him as blowing hot, but he was definitely at the warmer end of his blowing hot and cold spectrum. And he was also closer to pole than I think he's been since well since he his last pole was in in France, was it? France 2008, yeah. The race he finished second in after his exhaust had a problem while he was leading. So he dropped to second and teammate Felipe Massa won. I think that's the kind of minimum acceptable level of performance for Raikkonen. He was 11 seconds off by the end on the front row. That's what you expect. You know, this guy is a world champion. I'm quite hard on Kimi. Same reason as I've been quite hard on Bottas. But it's because I think they're good drivers. You know, if he was a third rater, you'd say, well, okay, Kimi Raikkonen driving around, being a distant fourth or fifth is fine. But He's got a lot of ability, and it's down to him to extract that and deliver consistently. And that's what he's there. That's what he's paid for. And I think that is him doing the job that he should be doing. I'm not entirely convinced he was 100% doing that across all of the first three races, but that that's a level they need from him. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think Ferrari have put their faith in Raikkonen for for some people for questionable reasons and that they like the the um, relationship that he has with Sebastian. He doesn't rock the boat. He keeps things quite comfortable. But they're going to have to make a decision at some point as to whether they do want to win the constructors. And like your your point you meant, meant, uh, mentioned earlier, Kimi's got to be clocking up the points consistently. Big points. Well, it says a lot that Vettel's leading the Drivers' Championship but the Constructors' League just is Mercedes. And that's basically down to the fact that Kimi's been a little bit weaker overall than the the kind of net of the, of the Mercedes team given that Bottas was ahead this time but coming back to Bottas he was only signed by Mercedes for one year so there's extra pressure on him there Eddie Jordan was going on about this on the podium trying to encourage Toto Wolff to get his pen out and sign a contract there and then there was a little bit of a serious side to that because it is Bottas' job now to prove to Mercedes that they should definitely re-sign him and this will be a, a big step once while he doesn't make a summer and all that it's not going to be enough but if that does allow him to consistently produce, then I think it's going to be a foregone conclusion that he'll be kept on for for 2018 and beyond, surely. I can see that happening. And I think basically having having his contractual status enshrined the way it is has been the best way of ensuring he stays on the ball. It's been very good for Mercedes as well because they've been able to keep other options open. So it's it's a win-win for Mercedes. If uh, he didn't perform, they could quite easily sign someone else. And it's really put the onus on him to perform and at the moment it seems to be going the right way we'll 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 see whether we're still saying the same thing come Abu Dhabi it's a good way to keep the pressure on because you want to see 
how people perform under pressure because if you're going to win a world championship you're going to be under the most intense pressure you've ever felt ultimately so you want to be able to see that and also Mercedes will want to know they've got a second driver who can be a team leader should Hamilton happen to decide to retire you know you never know with drivers it could go on for years he could decide actually I've done this now I've had enough I'm gonna go and do something else so you want to have in your armory a driver who can pick up the baton if necessary and Bottas has taken some good steps towards proving that he justifies that status definitely but I agree with both of you in that it is too early to kind of start suggesting that he should be signing massively long contracts you know with Mercedes what you know why would Toto get his pen out now and 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 do a contract extension we are like only four races into the season well there's no reason to is there he's not going anywhere else you don't really want to start thinking about that till July or the break really do you Career-wise, it's a pretty remarkable turnaround. He ended last season expecting to be a Williams driver this season. It all changed when Rosberg retired. But if you were Bottas in that scenario, you'd be thinking, well, I've done a few years with Williams. I've shown I'm pretty good. Ferrari came calling for him. They did offer money to try and sign him for 16, but it didn't meet the release clause and they weren't willing to go all the way up. So he was aware there was a chance to go to a top team that didn't quite come off. He was hoping, I think, for 17 to get picked up by someone. That didn't happen. So Williams was kind of the fallback position. But there was the danger it was always going to be a holding pattern because as we've seen from what Felipe Massa has done, had Bottas been at Williams this year, he'd be finishing 6th, 7th in Grand Prix, which is basically what he'd been doing the previous season, so treading water. But it's amazing how one person's decision can kind of transform everything because in the course of five or six months, it was inconceivable he'd win the Russian Grand Prix. And now he's a Grand Prix winner and we're talking about him as a potential future team leader for Mercedes in a post-Hamilton era, if, if there is one. It's kind of all about being in the right place at the right time when someone else makes that decision because you can quite easily be a Fernando Alonso or a Nico Hulkenberg in the same circumstances who are never quite in the right place at the right time or have alienated enough previous employers that uh, <laughs> that thing happens by default. Yeah, there is an element of luck involved in this. You can put yourself in the shop window, but there's always other chess pieces to move around the board to open things up for you. The key is to be ready when that opportunity presents itself. And that's what we saw from Bottas. It was a little bit of a shame he had that, that lock up and did the tyre damage. You could see on the slow down lap how how much vibration there was coming through the wheel. That was a, a driver error, probably a driver error under pressure, but he kind of gathered it up and then saw it out to the end of the race. Obviously, we had this incident on the last lap coming past Massa, Bottas lapped him on the approach into turn two. Vettel followed Massa through the long turn three left-hander and then was very hesitant into turn four. He had a bit of a moan over the radio, although after the race, it should be noted, Vettel said there was no problem with that. And Massa obviously said he didn't think he did anything wrong. Personally, I have no problem with what Massa did. He was perfectly entitled to hold his line through three. And if you look at it, he took a normal wide entry. And he's right. I think he said Vettel was afraid to make the move and in fact in many ways he was he was just a little bit hesitant there's that point where you sort of think Massa was in his car thinking well go on then the inside's clear past you go and it should be noted that Massa was battling with Ocon and, and Perez as well still it was still relatively close between them he ended up finishing a chunk behind them partly because of that but Massa still had his own race as well so personally I've got no problem with that anyone anyone objecting when you are allowing someone through obviously there's there's a there's a courtesy involved but it can be a little bit like in 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 a busy bar or pub holding the toilet door open for someone and then eight other people try and walk through so you don't really want that to happen and and Martin Brundle 
you can get him started very easily on the topic of his early seasons when he drove for Ken Tyrrell and he would routinely be treated to a Ken Tyrrell froth job um, after the race if he'd uh, given up too much time letting people through. It was always Ken Tyrrell's thing that um, you drive your own race and they have to overtake you. Obviously, that's slightly changed now with the blue flag regulations. You can't go past three without letting the driver pass. But teams at the back do do analysis of their driver performance to see how much time they lost in blue flags and letting people pass. And they'll say, well, actually, do you know what? On average, you were wasting half a second more than you should have done letting people pass. So there's a pressure there as well to do what you need to do to minimise the time loss. It's kind of a, a game that both are involved in. It's down to the person lapping who's got the faster car to be decisive, which Vettel wasn't in this instance. It's down to the driver being lapped to be compliant, but not drive off the track at the first opportunity to keep out of the way. Drivers should be aware. I mean, I, I have to say I'm with Nigel Roebuck, the venerable Nigel Roebuck, the doyen Nigel Roebuck on the subject of blue flags. I don't want to see a return to the era where you'd have people of the ilk of René Arnoux and uh, Olivier Gruyard, who would just be a mobile chicane. Oh, Gruyard was brilliant, wasn't he? I, I, actually, Gruyard used to, um, in, in living many a dull middle third of a Grand Prix when uh, people would come up to lap him, particularly Nigel Mansell, and, and they would have a good fist shake. You know, Nigel would practically unbelt himself and lean out of the cockpit and shake his fist as he <laughs> went past. And the, the lost art of the fist shake is, is, is something we must all lament. It's a shame you can't really get your arm out very well anymore. That's yeah, yeah, you, you just sort of have to sort of do a little double-jointed kink and <laughs> do, do the battle finger or something. It's just not as emphatic, is it? It just looks no. stupid. Good. Well, we've got the art of, uh, the art of being angry while lapping people out of the way looking a little bit more at the ferrari versus mercedes performance that does strike me as a race really ferrari should have won we said this in every race that somebody won but somebody else should have won had ferrari either ferrari led at the start they'd have won wouldn't they again it, this was a track position thing track position always sounds stupid obviously you always want to be in front but in each race we've seen decisive moments that have set the on-track order that has then set the tone for the whole race and basically the first 10 seconds decided that race even though Vettel came into it at the end the foundation was was laid by that because overtaking is not easy at Sochi we don't think we saw any overtaking maneuvers of any great significance or even of insignificance to be quite honest it was it was interesting that because I I thought Ferrari's strategy seemed very passive sort of unusual for them because they're never backwards in coming forwards with an unusual strategy even if it's completely bang your head against the wall wrong and it seemed to me to be that they were waiting for Mercedes to give up track position and then uh, when, when they did they um didn't really massively do much with it well, it's one of those things, isn't it? The undercut's not very powerful there because degradation is very low. And if you look at it, Vettel went seven laps longer before his stop. But the gap when Bottas came out of the pits to when Vettel pitted was basically the same. So I think Ferrari were just thinking, well, we'll leave him out there. We're not losing anything. You never know, a safety car or a virtual safety car could win you the race in that scenario. And while he was lapping quickly, it was worth keeping him out there. And that's why we had that incident where Vettel was called in and they said, oh no, actually stay out, because they were looking at the at the times, and he was holding Bottas. Bottas wasn't gaining, so you think, well, there's no point in making the stop. You might as well go around one more lap and uh, and just extend the stint just to see what happens. And it created a little bit of an offset, so even with low deck, there's a little bit of a advantage from fresh tyres, which Vettel used to good effect. So I don't have any problem with them doing it, but I think it was done more in hope than in expectation. And that's the same reason they didn't take the undercut they knew the undercut would not work even with Vettel getting to within a couple of seconds of Bottas having been sort of five and a half behind earlier in the stint 
I just think it was a throw the dice. Let's just leave the car out there, see what happens. There's no, there was no downside to it, put it that way. And there was a possible upside they could have fluked. Well, it's been a long time since Ferrari have locked out the front row and been able to control a race or had the opportunity to control a race. It's been required for them to be aggressive, for them to have a chance of winning a race. So it was just a different scenario that they didn't cope very well with, but it's one that they haven't had to cope with for a long time. So we've seen in the past when Mercedes have ever had a challenge, they've cracked under the pressure, whereas they've had so long when they didn't have a challenge from anyone else. So I think I think you're right in that perhaps Ferrari weren't as aggressive as they have been this year. But I think that's just, it's just well, circumstance. I'd argue there wasn't an aggressive strategy there, to be honest. You can try and undercut someone, but if you've got a fractional advantage on an undercut and you're trying to jump someone who's a couple of seconds up the road, it's just not going to work. So I'd actually say, well, it wasn't necessarily aggressive. It was kind of a no downside thing to, to leave him out. It would be interesting to see that scenario happen again up until that point, by which I mean Ferrari front row lockout. Uh, and then it would be interesting to see if they were to run one two in the race what they would actually do i think that 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 would add to our enjoyment and pleasure this season it would considerably add to the enjoyment of of all the new experiences we're having uh, in in 2017 yeah it'd be nice to see ferrari in command of a race early on just to see what happens should we say i suspect it would have played out in similar fashion because we'd have ended up with the same thing with a not very powerful undercut tires lasting quite well it may just have been that ferrari wouldn't have pitted quite as early as as Bottas did. The other thing we saw is that Red Bull was absolutely nowhere. Last week's podcast, we talked about how Red Bull was nowhere. They managed to be even more nowhere in Russia. Miles off the pace. Uh, Ricardo was 1.7 seconds off in qualifying. Obviously, his race didn't last very long with a right rear brake problem. Verstappen drove about, finished fifth, long way behind the top four. Had to be told to put his brake balance as far forward as possible in case the same brake problem afflicted him. Yeah, it's not it's not good, is it? There's a lack of pace, a few little glitches. Obviously, he had the brake failure in Bahrain last time out. Ricardo's had this brake problem in Russia. <laughs> it's all starting to look a little bit like a mess for them, isn't it? Well, we're, we're inching closer towards that scenario a couple of years ago where Red Bull were just getting increasingly frustrated with Renault and voicing their frustration publicly. It's it's an unfor- it's unfortunate where where they are, but I don't think it's um it's completely Renault's fault this time. I think Daniel Ricciardo kind of suggested in one of his briefings at the weekend that it's down to the chassis is you know maybe fifty fifty as much as the engine. I think that's fair. Yeah, there was that news story where someone has commissioned some analysis, and of course we should always be wary of uh, anyone commissioning analysis. For instance, surveys saying that Britain needs more roads to alleviate its traffic problem, according to a survey commissioned by the British Bitumen Laying Association. Oh, that fun, sort of funny thing. that. Funny that. Oh, what a surprise! But um, uh, if it's, it's, uh, whoever came up with uh, with a little analysis suggested that Renault were very close to the the ballpark in terms of power output so if if you were to take that at any sort of face value it sort of leads you down the 50 50 route doesn't it that the chassis isn't great also helmut marco said that there's a lot of new stuff arriving in spain yeah there's a huge package for the spanish grand prix so i guess we can reserve definitive judgment let's see if they can make a make a big step but it's looking less and less likely that Red Bull's going to be getting into the game. Obviously, Bahrain was stronger, possibly because of high temperatures and track configuration. Such is a bit worse, but they're, they're miles off. They're just in a no-man's land between the top four and the rest. So there's going to be a lot of fifth and sixth places at the rate this is, the rate this is going. Now, a little bit further back, we also had two Force Indias in the points again. That's all four races this year. They've had both cars in the points. They're doing a good job. And in fact, if you extend that run into the back end of last season, 
I think it goes to seven consecutive double points finishes for them. Bearing in mind that car's not quite where it should be. They've had correlation problems in terms of the wind tunnel to track performance. They're expecting the Spain upgrade to change that. They talked about this as damage limitation. and What a brilliant piece of damage limitation yes, this has been. it's a piece of damage limitation anyone would want, isn't it? And they're fourth in the Constructors' Championship. It's not the fourth strongest car overall. You could certainly say they're the fourth best team. In fact, you'd probably say they're doing, pound for pound, certainly doing a better job than Red Bull. Would be interesting to see what happens with, is it a new floor that's coming, Lawrence? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, new floor and various other things could transform that car. You know, if, if it's doing quite well for an untransformed vehicle at the moment, uh, you have to wonder that if, depending on what Red Bull do with their new package, they might actually start needing to worry about Force India. Well, Force India introduced a big package at Spain last year and they had a massive upturn in form. Um, and they were going for damage limitation these first four races last year and it wasn't quite as successful as it has been this year. So I think you're right that Red Bull need to be concerned about Force India because they're a, a, th- a thoroughly uh, competitive outfit. They're just a very, very sharp racing team. They get things right. And that's reflected in the consistent points finish. I think Perez is on a run of 14 consecutive points finishes. He's been 10th, 5th, 8th, 8th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 10th, 4th, 8th, 7th, 9th, 7th, 6th. Which is impressive because if you're in a Force India, you're in a part of the field that's congested. There's a lot of cars around. It's very easy to get caught in first corner incidents, be they of your own making or of other people's making. It can be quite tight there. So if you're underachieving a little bit on a day, you can very easily be 12th rather than 8th. So that speaks very well both of Force India's ability to execute races well and the driver's ability to to deliver. And Ocon, obviously, he's four points finishes out of four since his move from his part season with Manor last year. And that translates into fourth in the Constructors' Championship. The Force India is definitely not a better car than the Williams. I don't really think it's much better than the Toro Rosso either. Well, if you're in a position where teams like Force India and Williams are, where you're outside the top three, you are basically in a re- relentless bun fight for 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th. And if you've got drivers who can finish on the podium in that particular bun fight, then uh, you're onto a winner at the end of the year, aren't you, in terms of commercial revenues? Very much so. And we're seeing, we're seeing some good performances in that part of the field. Force India drivers driving well, Massa's delivering pretty well. Nico Hulkenberg in the Renault, sticking it in Q3 and driving very good races. Carlos Sainz in the Toro Rosso. You know, these are good drivers able to really show what they can do by consistently picking up those minor points finishes. And while it's not a huge number of points for each result, it soon adds up. You look at it, Perez has got the same number of points as both Red Bull drivers. And also, you need both drivers doing that, don't you, which Force India have. And at the moment, Williams and uh, Toro Rosso and Renault don't have. Yeah, very much so. I think that's a little bit unfortunate for Kvyat. He's had quite a lot of bad luck this year. I think Kvyat can do, but science has been leading the charge so far. But no, it, it speaks very well for... Force India and it tells you why it pays off to take drivers based upon their ability now I know Perez comes with a lot of money however I don't think Perez if he was half the driver with that money would be in that seat and Force India you look back since Vijay Malia took over that team at a 2008 season they've always had good quality drivers in there and you can't fault that and that has paid them back in spades because then you finish higher up in the constructors you get more money in it's a good way to go I think it's a gamble, though, isn't it? Because you're you kind of putting your faith in a driver that you hope then does deliver. But if you don't, you haven't got the money that you could have had if you'd put a driver that has got money in. So they've taken the gamble and for racing purposes and it's worked out. So you're right. Yeah, and it's about estimating the drivers correctly, really, isn't it? And it also is very good for them because they're in a great scenario that drivers know that that's a good team. So 
if you happen to be a very good driver who's also got a massive wheelbarrow full of money, you're phoning up VJ Malia or Bob Fernley or whoever at Force India first, aren't you? Because that's the drive you want to have. So that's a huge advantage for that team to be in. And it's it's just come on very well. It's a relatively small team, but it's still got a good it's got a good budget. It's a it's a midfield level team, but they do punch above their weight. And fourth in the constructors again, basically having not got the car quite right, speaks very, very well for them. The other interesting thing is Sauber. We had the Honda deal announced on Sunday morning. We've been expecting that for a little bit. Now, there's been some interesting reactions to this. Some people saying, well, this is ridiculous. The Honda's been the worst engine in Formula One since they came back in. What on earth do you want getting an engine supply from them? What do you reckon, Lawrence? Well, Sauber are running a, a year-old Ferrari engine. So, to be honest, anything that gives them a current spec engine is going to be a better deal for them. The relationship that Sauber have had with Ferrari has been fractious, so it's not a surprise to see them split. In terms of the options that they've got, Honda seems to be the best bet. As I understand it financially, it's very beneficial for them. I don't think that they're paying a great deal uh, of money for that for that deal. And for Honda, it works out perfectly because they get a second team. They get double the amount of data. So it kind of makes sense for both sides. Yeah, it's not going to be a massive step forward for Sauber. Honda are likely going to struggle for the foreseeable future. But it's still a latest spec engine and Sauber just trying to rebuild gradually. So I think it's a good thing for them. It also puts them in a situation whereby if McLaren and Honda do irrevocably fall out, it shows Honda still wants to be there. And then Sauber suddenly the the frontline Honda team. Now, if you're a team like Sauber, even though Honda is struggling, that's not a bad position to be in. We, we expect Honda to make some progress. They did make some progress last year. They've changed a lot on the engine this year. You'd expect them to do better. I don't have ultimate confidence in them considering what's happened. But if you're Sauber, there's not a massive downside to this. I think financially it works well. You know, the money they save on the engines can then be put into other areas on the car which is not necessarily a bad thing. And there's also this possibility of some of the Honda-aligned junior drivers getting some mileage, which possibly could work to their financial benefit. There's a few in Europe, Nobiharu Matsushita in F2, uh, Nero Fukuzumi in GP3, and Tadasuki Makino in European F3. Now, all three of those are drivers with something to prove, but they've all shown they've got a good turn of speed. With the doors there for them to kick down, then um, that, that's a good thing. I, I suppose the, the really important important point about this is the one Lawrence raised which is of having more data points if you've got four cars running the engine then there's more chance of learning more because at the moment McLaren are getting so little mileage out of the engine that it's become almost a vicious circle hasn't it that they can't improve because they aren't getting enough data from the car to work out what's going wrong although it does seem that some things are going glaringly uh, wrong with with Alonso breaking down on his way to the grid. (laughs) They came into this regulation package a year after everyone else. It would have been a no-brainer to have had a second team. They could have picked one up with an advantageous financial package. It would have helped McLaren and it would have helped Honda. And it's ridiculous, really, that didn't happen. But I also think there was a confidence from Honda's side that when they came in, I don't think they thought it was going to be as hard as it has been for them. Um, (laughs) I think if they thought it was going to be this hard, they would never have come in. Well, exactly. But I think you can understand perhaps why they would have maybe wanted to put their full focus into McLaren and make that partnership work. As it's transpired, it hasn't been that easy. So they, they've taken steps. It was last summer that they started, you know, extending their factory so they could take on a second customer. So they're, they're being sensible about what they need to do about it. So, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see whether it proves a benefit. Another thing that uh, could 
be a positive about having uh, another team is that uh, uh, when I interviewed Ross Braun last year and, and spoke to him about the uh, when he moved to Honda as, as team principal in 07, he painted a picture of a very divided enterprise where you had the people building the chassis, very confident that they were doing a brilliant job and that it was the idiots supplying the engine that were doing a terrible job. Meanwhile, back in Japan, there were some people very confident in the engines they were building. And, and it was a misplaced confidence, of course, but they, they were very confident confident in the engines they were building and thought that the people building the chassis were doing a terrible job and of course there are elements of truth on both sides but it was only when he started banging their heads together to try and get them to work together that they actually started pointing in the right direction if honda are now supplying two teams that dilutes that excuse that the chassis is a turkey if i was in sauber's position i'd be thinking this is a this is a decent deal i don't think it's a backward step certainly whether it's a forward step is another matter, but it makes sense economically for them. It means they've got a, they've got an engine deal. Obviously, the uh, the McLaren gearbox they're going to have as well, because previously they were using Ferrari gearbox as well as the Ferrari engine. So that continues to mean that the gearbox is something that's out of the out of the team. It's a logical thing for a smaller team to do because the gearbox is a pretty expensive thing to produce yourself, and the overall performance of gearboxes is pretty similar. So effectively, if you're doing your own, all you're going to do is spend a load of money making something that's as good as anyone else's when you can spend less money just to have one off the shelf. So that's a very logical move for them to do. Force India do do a similar thing and have done very well out of it. It's a good thing that people who see logic make these decisions rather than people on Twitter who think everything's a bad idea. Because uh, if, if half the denizens of Twitter were running Sauber, this deal would never have happened and the team would be continuing to plough its lonely furrow where it is instead of having an opportunity to do something different. The one downside, though, is that when the team got taken over last year and its financial future secured, we were expecting lots of investment, etc. Now, the fact they've had to take the Honda deal tells me there's not an unstoppable tap of money being poured into this team. So could you also look at it from that perspective, that this kind of confirms Sauber as a team that is operating as a small Grand Prix team and is going to continue to do so? I think so. I think when the deal was announced it wasn't suggested that they were going to pile a load of money into the team. I think it was more that they just saved the team to start with and then they were prepared to put some money in to try and just put them on a on a more solid foundation. Um, who wouldn't take more money if it was offered to you? And Honda has proved with McLaren that they've got money that they can pump into a team. And you touched on it earlier that Sauber's a good backup plan for Honda um, to do it. Yes, it perhaps doesn't look so good to the outside world that they're having to take a deal that requires them to take an engine that's underperforming and um, because it's cheaper. But look at what they've got at the moment. It was, you know, a Ferrari deal that wasn't brilliant anyway. It was costing them a fortune. So isn't that just good business sense? We were sitting in Frankfurt Airport, weren't we, when the Longbow deal was was announced? That, that, that was a happy journalistic afternoon, wasn't it? You you collaborating with our friend Dieter Rankin on the story, me hammering through Company's house following the paper trail of Longbow Finance to see who owned what. That's true. Marcus Ericsson's name came up a lot. Yeah, well, it should be good news for, for Ericsson, as we can assume he's going to be there for the duration. And certainly it's not going to be a negative for Salva. Odds are that team's not going to score any points this year. 
they've already had what should have been the golden period of the season. They could still score points by attrition, obviously, and maybe in a wet race it might be possible, but it's not a very good car, and the Ferrari 16 engine is going to become less and less relevant as the season progresses and the, the other engines get upgraded. So positive for Sauber. I think any kind of deal that shores up the stability of a team is very positive. And also with all the changes we're expecting a few years down the line under Formula One's new commercial rights holder, so ownership, in terms of the way that the finance may or may not be distributed in the future, it's a good way for Sauber, if you like, to bridge across to the end of the current bilateral commercial agreements and then make sure they're still around in time to maybe benefit from this share the wealth utopia that uh, everybody's expecting. I suspect it won't quite be as magical as that, but at least shores up the team, which is which is no, no bad thing. I mean, it, it is important that the immediate future of these, um, say, dare we say it, back of the grid teams are secured because we've already lost mana. And if we're going to mangle our historic references, we, we don't really want to see our commercial rights holders shaking hands with Vladimir Putin while Rome burns. <laughs> yeah, you're enjoying the Putin references. I'm enjoying my Nero references. Yeah, that's that's what we like to see. A bit, a bit of everything mixing your uh, mixing your eras there, which is good. I might have a cafe Nero reference later, but uh, that's very much AOB. I mean, talking of AOB, we also saw in this race the collision between Grosjean and Palmer at the second corner, effectively the first corner, the first breaking point of the race. No action was taken after stewards looked at it. Now, I think this is quite a good thing. We've seen a few of these this year. They said coming into the season that the rule had been changed to a driver having to be wholly or predominantly to blame for a collision in order to justify a penalty. Uh, we saw Magnussen and Ericsson on the first lap in Australia. We saw this one as well. I think that's quite a positive thing. If you look at what happens from the onboard from Grosjean, yeah, he draws alongside Palmer in under braking. He's not there before the braking zone, but he was perfectly entitled to stick his car there. Palmer was a little bit squeezed by drivers on the outside. There just wasn't quite enough room for all of them. Had a collision, game over for both of them. You can understand why they're annoyed at each other because drivers always are, but I think that's quite positive, particularly in a race where we didn't see much overtaking. The last thing you want to have is drivers terrified of making moves. You don't want lunatic moves, but I think that's quite positive, the fact that went unpunished, surely. I agree. I think um, you described it very well, that, that you know there's a chance of both drivers there. Roman had a chance to go down the inside. Palmer had every right to to take the corner as his um i think if we if we're going to get back to where we were beforehand and drivers are too scared then can you imagine how boring that first you know first turn would have been no one would have done anything everyone would have stayed well clear of each other and it would have been dull so yeah i agree i think we'll probably start talking about it again when the incident is severe enough that it should have got a penalty and it doesn't get a penalty but we'll have to just wait and see until that. Well, that's the question yeah. we haven't really seen where the line is yet have we yeah, we we might we might see that later in the season as people are emboldened to action. But yeah, I mean, I I agree. It it looked to begin with like uh, it it transpired the way Grosjean described it. But uh, with the benefit of a few more angles, a bit of slow mo, certainly my position at home with the old pause button, having a look, it was very much a racing instant. Three into two won't go in that corner, and Grosjean just did what any racing driver would do in a in a corner like that and went to send it up the inside. Palmer at first didn't squeeze him, but there, Palm, Palmer had to go through that corner himself, didn't he? And he couldn't move out and open the door because there was, what, Verline's Sauber there? So he would have taken Verline out if he'd moved over. Also, Grosjean in, in the final moment 
lost control a little bit because the car grounded over the curb. So he he lost steering and that just tipped him into Palmer and robbed him of an opportunity to uh, avoid the accident that then happened. It's good that circumstances are taken into account, though, as you say, with the three cars there. Circumstances were a big part in that collision happening. It doesn't necessarily mean the blame gets divided up evenly between drivers. There's a corner that's a certain shape, cars are in certain places, start of the race, these things happen. Well, we've, we've kind of worked our way to the back of the grid, so let's chuck ourselves back to the front again. We've seen the pattern of Mercedes v Ferrari continuing. The interesting thing we've not really touched on a great deal is Lewis Hamilton's struggles. What do we make of this weekend? He said that he didn't really know exactly what was going on. He said his setup was similar to that of Bottas. He had a bit of overheating during the race, which didn't help, but a few people were were battling that. So does this just get put down as one of those... Well, I think Hamilton himself described it as one of those weekends. Is it just one of those weekends where things just aren't quite working, doesn't suit his driving style? I think it's a one-off until... Until he has two weekends in a row, I don't think we can look at it. At and it's a two-off. <laughs> well, I just don't. <laughs> more data required. I just, yeah, I just don't feel like it's worth thinking anything more than he's just had an off weekend. Um, and as we've seen in the past, he's had weekends where he's been anonymous, and this was just another one of those. Yeah. Uh, and if if you can be anonymous and pick up a fourth place, that's not a terrible thing, is it? Well, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, to my mind. The, the strange thing was the issue of the temperatures because he seemed very frustrated as if it was the temperature thing that was limiting his capacity. You, you heard the dialogue between him and his race engineer where he said, I'm trying to race here, man, or something like that. The implication of that or what one might infer from that was was that he could go faster if he wasn't managing temperatures. Well, and he, said, he said that without backing off because of the temperature, which he said he had to do from lap five onwards, he was losing seven tenths, maybe even a second a lap. So you can see how the circumstances played against him there. No driver, no matter how great they are, doesn't have weekends where things don't come together. So, you know, the, the very fact that this is so unusual tells you how good Lewis Hamilton is. Yeah, it's, it's a downside of being a three-time champion that is pretty much excellent everywhere, is that when, when you have a weekend where you are an also-ran, it, it stands out that much more, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you'd still put your money on him to be the the Mercedes effective team leader, should we say. But if I was Hamilton, I'd be very happy to see what Bottas did. And I'd be happy to have a driver who's there, able to take points off my off my rivals. Okay, he doesn't necessarily want another Rosberg-type scenario, which is obviously what Bottas is working towards. But again, the last thing you really need, and I think the last thing a team needs is a very distant number two. You want to keep the pressure on the number one driver as well, be a relevant comparison, take points off people. It's just the logical way to go, to my mind, anyway even if it does make for a slightly harder life for team bosses. Well, I don't think Formula 1 exists to make Formula 1 team bosses easy. If they want to stick their head in that particular lion's mouth, they uh, shouldn't start crying if the jaws close around their crania. Well, we're expecting a similar pattern to happen in Spain in a week and a bit. Lots of upgrades to come there, so it'll be interesting to see how that changes the dynamic in the championship battle. But the first four races of the season have been pretty fantastic, really. The racing has been... Gripping, I think is the word. It hasn't been spectacular in the constant wheel banging, constant overtaking sense, but the closest we've had to a race that's got a bit dull was the first half in Russia because it was all a little bit static, but then that race came alive. So all four races have had something to offer. We've got two teams on a similar level, which is fantastic. That's what you need. Incidentally, that's not a function of the regulations other than the fact they've changed to allow a bit of a reset. We could have had this in 
the previous three years, but just didn't have two teams at similar levels. And that's what it takes to make a really good season. So, yeah, there's going to be plenty to talk about on the, on future Autosport podcasts. So I would urge everybody to subscribe via iTunes or many other podcasting apps. There's thousands that I uh, I care not to mention. So thank you very much from myself, Ed Straw, and also thanks to my guests, Lawrence Barreto and Stuart Codling. You can follow all the latest news and features on motorsport, Formula One and the rest of the racing world on autosport.com. Pick up a copy of Autosport magazine on Thursday, which will have our Grand Prix editor, Ben Anderson's excellent in-depth Grand Prix report all about how Valtteri Bottas went from number two to number one. Also pick up a copy of F1 Racing. When's the next issue out, Collis? Um, it's, it's about a week on Thursday, I think. We're, we're about due for that, yes. That's one to look forward to. Yes. Excellent. So plenty of reading. No excuse not to buy all of those things. Subscribe to the podcast. So thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back next week with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. thought that the whole scene in the green room could have been enlivened by them using the guy who does the voiceover for Monkey Life, the programme set in the Dorset-based ape rescue centre Monkey World, uh, where they describe what's happening in, in, the, in, in the chimp house, you know, sort of uh, Bernie used to be the alpha male but he's an old boy now and he's in his dotage <laughs> new alpha male Sean likes to let Bernie think he's still in charge oh, oh but oh Bernie's tugging the sleeve of the visiting dignitary, Sean won't like that. But cheeky chappy Ross, who's the cleverest ape in the house, he'll make sure he walks away with all the frozen melon. While they're all trying to work out what Sean's talking about. But of course then when there's a visit from Chase, whose enormous (laughs) moustache signifies his primacy. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. When Shopify says you can sell anywhere, oh, they mean it. Woo, hold up. Just got a new sale, order fulfilled, and shipped. Inventory level's good. Whoa, Shopify doesn't mind if you're at sea level. Or on top of the world. Oh, you can run and grow your business anywhere. Climbing mountains is never easy, but at least Shopify gives me all the tools I need for my business to hit new beats. 
Whether you're selling carabiners or crop tops, start selling with Shopify today and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. We've built the platform so you can keep climbing and grow your business to new heights. With Shopify, you really can sell to anyone from anywhere. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Start selling online today. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash free 22. Shopify.com slash free 22. Shopify.com slash free 22. Internet connection required. Not available on mountaintops or seafloors. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.